Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. Welcome to this episode of Xenoforce Reborn. I am your host, Doug Bindo, and today we have another exciting episode of Xenoforce Reborn. So we had our live episode on Saturday, um, this past Saturday, and, um, you know, Azusa actually had a list of questions that he gave me, primarily dealing with the fan base and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, and um, that was something in and of itself, I would say, that was uh, pretty interesting. And the reason to why I say that is it deals more with the fact that Azusa... I think from his end, um, was trying to cut through a lot of the confusion, if you will, the confusion that's been brought about by this latest release. Okay. So to begin with, um, there is a bit of confusion that's taken place, um, in this newest release. And the reason for it is, is because this was the release where we decided to really start hitting with our story. Um, so now people are finding out that we are not going with a command and conquer, uh, story that we are going with a, you know, cross, you know, cross verse, um, or, um, crossover as they call it. <laughs> uh, cause I always forget the term crossover is the, is the term that's actually officially used, but a crossover of command and conquer Gundam and Robotech. So basically you have multiple, you know, um, franchises all being jammed down one pipeline. Okay. And, you know, effectively it's, it's turning, you know, apple juice, grape, and, you know, raspberry into fruit punch. That's what's happening here. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I, or at least I don't think it is. Um, I know that sometimes people get a little iffy about crossovers and stuff like that. I've seen that definitely in the past. Uh, keep in mind, I do Robotech fans, so I've seen how that works out. Um, on that end. And, uh, you know, I, I honestly, when it comes to crossovers and stuff like that, um, I, I've even effectively lost, um, you know, I would say good, you could say partners, um, people that hold the same point of view that, uh, I do. Um, once when you get over to the crossover, you know, crossover, uh, state of, of storytelling. And the reason for it is because it's a very touchy thing. Um, you have these respective franchises that people love. So then when you go to alter the continuities in the way that we have, uh, what happens is people look at it and they say, Oh no, 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 no. You know, you can't have it like that. You can't do it like that. This is mine. This is mine. And it's got to stay in this corner, you know, and, and all of a sudden nobody wants to share, you know, they don't. Uh, but you know, to a point of that, I, I really simply just have to ask, like, how the hell do people expect us to sit up here and put multi-factions in a game, have credible gameplay for each faction, keep it totally balanced without doing a kind of crossover? Like, it just doesn't make sense. 
you know, uh, when you're talking like Robotech Gundam in, in CNC, you are talking about effectively universes that are totally different in their, you know, ability of, of being able to deliver a story premise. But going beyond that, if you were to look at the universal backgrounds of technology, you know, things are very different from that respect. Uh, they, they really, really are. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, we've had to tackle. And this is part of the reason to why we actually had to create the story that we did is because we needed that universal, you know, backdrop, you know, um, the universal technologies, if you will. Like, in other words, how can you sit up here and say that a, shall we say for the sake of the conversation, um, predator tank is equivalent to an RGM 79, which an RGM 79 is equivalent to, we'll say for the sake of the conversation, a, uh, VF one. Okay. Now, if you're talking within their respective stories, a predator tank and an RGM 79 would be two totally different type of units. Now it would depend, I guess, on the RGM, you know, the RGM 79, uh, type that we're talking about to get closest to the predator tank. But like, for example, if we went with something like the RGM, you know, 79C GM Kaya, all right, we do that from Gundam. Um, it easily, I would say, would be able to hold its own against the predator tank from CNC. Now, if the predator tank had like, you know, anti-armor rockets or tow missiles, then that's a different story. I mean, like at that point, I'd be kissing that RGM goodbye. Um, but the thing that you have to understand here is that it takes one person to basically run the GM it takes three to five people to run a predator tank, you know? So there are lots of things to look at just from that setting. All right. When you, when you're comparing a tank to a mobile suit or a tank to a, a, uh, battleoid or a tank to just a form of humanoid Japanese mecha, there are things that you have to understand, you know, and you got to understand them in the sense of, it is complicated to do. It's nothing easy. Like when you're trying to basically quantify the idea of how a tank actually works on the battlefield. Okay. And then you're supposed to pair with a futuristic robot that is supposed to be worth its weight in development, but at the same time, not overbearing in a way that totally voids out. Okay. Totally voids out the tank. Um, that's, what's really interesting of how these things work and how we have to go about doing things. So I, I talk about this in, in Robotech fan all the time, which is basically like your, your, your universal, you know, technologies, your universal background, you know, um, basically it's the, the kind of technologies that everything can abide by. And you're able to start from this point, which everyone can agree to. Okay, a point of agreement, and then move forward. So, for Xenoforce Reborn, it, it has to work the same way. And this is something that Ryan and I quickly understood, because one of the problems with Xenoforce is the fact that there is no point of agreement when it comes to technological origins. There just, there, there isn't. You know, it, it doesn't make a difference whether you're talking the U.S., China, if you're talking... GLA. I mean, like, even if you looked in Command and Conquer, actually, like, if you look at Command and Conquer 
uh, generals. Okay, for, forget about the Xenoforce or Xenoforce itself. Okay, look at Command and Conquer generals. If you just look at that, you've got China, you've got the U.S., and then you got the GLA. If you looked at those three, you don't even have a concept of universal, you know, um, a universal agreement of technologies. You actually don't. You know, what happens is you have factions that just play off of the ideas of technologies, but there is no balancing in it whatsoever. Like, for example, a, a Crusader tank, all right, a Crusader tank, which is effectively, you know, which is assumed to be equivalent to a, a Predator tank, uh, I'm sorry, not a Predator tank, but a, uh, um, um, an Abram tank, all right, would not in any way, shape, or form be damaged by, like, a Scorpion tank. Just wouldn't happen. Now, if the Scorpion tank had a tow missile, I mean, like, that, that'd be different, but other than that, it's just, it's not gonna happen, you know. You got the GLA running around with, you know, tractors with tank torrents on them and stuff like that, and, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it really doesn't when you actually start thinking about it. Now, I do believe that there is nothing wrong in the way that EA went about the fundamental concept of trying to do a command and conquer general system, where the idea is you have the world tech leaders, the number one economy, the strongest force on the planet, the U.S. Then you have an up-and-coming power, which is quite undefined and could rival the U.S. potentially, which would be China. And then you have, you know, just the anti-establishment, you know, which is the GLA. Now, in Command & Conquer and how it works, you know, the U.S. is pretty much on key in the way that... The, that, that they're actually portrayed. I mean, in many respects, not in every respect, obviously, but in many respects, like for example, the Crusader tank, although somewhat cartoony, you could definitely say definitely fits the description of a main battle tank. The Paladin tank, okay, which is supposed to have, you know, the idea of, you know, anti-rocket ability and, you know, um, it, basically a greater protective armored system from, you know, um, ballistics and stuff like that. You know, okay, that's understandable. The idea that they sit up here and, and play the drone scene into it. Um, I mean, there are mistakes made in the fact that they try to use Humvees effectively as anti-infantry vehicles. Like, I, I would definitely say that that is a mistake in the way that the uh, the U.S. is portrayed. Um, because I believe that, you know, you could have just had an anti-fighting, you know, um, anti-fighting vehicle... Um, or, you know, uh, armored fighting vehicle like the Bradley and just called it the Alex, you know, what? I, I don't know. And then, you know, given it, you know, the same setup as the Humvee and then the Humvee could have been something even more lightly armored. Um, that could have been called in for support for, you know, troops and stuff like that that have to go into quote unquote heavier areas. And the Humvee could have really represented the idea of having, um, heavy troop armor, you know, that is just not a trooper with heavy armor, if that makes sense. So a, a lot of times in like RTS, and, and we do it here uh, too, what happens is that you have different levels of what can actually be as a representative on the battlefield. 
And, um, like, for example, uh, we use, you know, cyborgs. And, you know, people wonder, well, why do you use cyborgs with Nod? Well, A, because Nod had cyborgs um, during the Firestorm and Cabal, you know, uh, scenarios. But also, the reason to why we use, you know, cyborgs, are cyborgs are a great way of having heavy, mobilized infantry without making them heavy, mobilized infantry. Like, in other words, you can contain it in one unit and consolidate all the HP the armor ratings and stuff like that and give an output and it works out great versus, you know, trying to take standard infantry, boost up their armor, boost up their HP. And then what happens is you get into one of those weird shoot them out scenarios. But the problem you run into, of course, is because it's still a guy in armor, regardless of the, the advancements that you give the suit you get into a weird, like, second-by-second-by-second second second kill thing, you know. And, and and that's partly just due to the fact that it takes a second to kill one, you know, soldier, or then it takes another second to kill another soldier, then it takes another second to kill another soldier, and so on and so forth. So, you know, a squad of, you know, six may take literally, you know, three to six seconds to kill. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing from a time perspective, Except for one thing. You know, you gotta look at the amount of damage that they inflicted on, you know, the opposing, uh, on the opposing faction. Which probably was essentially insignificant. You know, so like, in other words, what you have is you basically have like these, these bumper pads going up against each other, you know, in terms of infantry and beating up each, beating up against each other and then just shattering just for the sake of doing so. And it's really just a waste of eco, um, and it, it, it really does nothing to further the, the overall narrative of a given faction. So your alternative to it, okay, is having a unit that still can be looked at as a, an infantry base class unit without actually being a meat shield. And this is where a Humvee would come into play, or this is where a cyborg would come into play. Or, um, you know, uh, the concept of power armor. Power armor could come into play in this, you know. Basically something that can realistically just drive the narrative. Because the difference between, like, a Humvee and a fighting vehicles is pretty significant. One has drastically more armor than the other, number one. Uh, number two, both have, you know, anti-infantry. And one typically has... Um, an anti-armor capability, which is typically an upgrade. That's normally how it works. So, you know, there are differences here that y- you would have with the Humvee versus, uh, uh, you know, a um, armored fighting vehicle. And there's, or APC, as some people like to think of them. Um, my point is that this is where generals kind of just, like, messed up. They messed up on that end. Like, on the armor end, like, mechanized heavy armor end, you know, one might say that they nailed it just right. But as you, you know, deviate from that, whether you're talking about artillery or whether you're talking about, you know, um, you know, APC slash, you know, um, armored fighting vehicles, this is where they, they tend to make their mistake with the U.S. Now, 
of course, what they try to do is they try to pick this up with factions like China or, dare I even say, the GLA. You know, and, and the idea behind it is, is fairly simple, which is, you know, the Chinese have, you know, a APC carrier. You know, they have that. Um, and they so happen to have, you know, straightforward artillery. They have that too. You know, so the Chinese get these things that the U.S. should have, but they don't have because that's the way that they try to flush out the concept of universal technologies. So the idea in generals is you base the, the U.S. on the concept of, you know, main battle armor. That's what you do. Um, when you look at the Chinese, the Chinese really are using more of a support system. Okay, that's what they're doing with anti... <coughs> with, uh, you know, APC carriers and, and artillery, you know, base systems and stuff like that. Um, but then when you get to the GLA, the GLA effectively take up the light end of things. Okay, that's what they do. Um, and, and what I mean by that is basically they're like the MacGyvers of... of Command and Conquer Generals, that given franchise slash universe, where they're able to take a tractor, you know, throw a, you know, uh, torn onto it and say, ah, look at what we got right here, you know, or take a tractor and, and throw a, um, you know, tow missile on it and be like, ah, look at this right here. You know, this is what they do. You know, this is, this is who the GLA is. So what that does is that really sets the player up for, from a GLA perspective with a salvage based system, um, which means that you can just take the crap on the battlefield and do something with it. You know, that, that was the general concept of what they were supposed to be. Now, I do think that in terms of execution of the GLA, like just straight up EA blew it. They did. Um, I think that when you, when you look at the GLA, when you look at the type of gameplay they have, and then you look at the potential of what they could have been, it totally changes. Like, for example, if, if you're trying to make them scavengers and if you're trying to make them you know, effectively a faction that collects on salvage, then basically every single time they destroy something, they should gain something in their assortment, which they don't. And this is one of the problems that they have as a faction. And this is why the GLA, for the most part, when you play generals, most people don't want to play them because they're flatlined. I mean, they, they really are flatlined. Now, with that being said, the weaknesses that the GLA would have, obviously would be infrastructure. They would have a much weaker infrastructure. It would take longer to build. Although technically, yeah, you have, you know, bunker-proof infrastructure and so on and so forth. You're still using, like, human labor, <laughs> you know, with uh, stone hammers and, 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 and chisels and whatnot to, to, to build your infrastructure. So this is, like, their weak point. But their strong point is their scavenging abilities. It's the fact that they can take a tank that's been you know, literally rot it out and take the best from it, you know, what's, what's still, uh, just acceptable in terms of, you know, um, whether you're talking repair or restore, um, or restoration, that is, um, ability and do something with it. And had EA done this right, you would have had, you know, effectively, uh, a faction where you would have had, you know, um, the GLA getting tanks, okay, and I use that very loosely, tanks with heavier gun torrents and stuff like that. But I had also sit up here and point this out. What you would also get from the GLA is you also would have gotten, 
shall I say, super weapons that would have made more sense based on the concept of salvaging like old war, World War II type, you know, um, battleships and stuff like that. So when you think of the GLA, if, if, if someone were to ask me, could the GLA ever build something like a mammoth tank? I'd be like, definitely, yeah, they could. Now, someone might look at me and say, well, well what do you mean? How can, how can they sit up here and build something like a mammoth tank? Well, it's, it's very simple. The GLA have the ability to salvage whatever and then piecemeal it together. Okay, so imagine you sit up here and talk about World War II. The GLA go out, they salvage, and they, and they pick up, you know, some rotted battleship or whatever, or some battleship that's decommissioned, however it, it plays out. And then they literally take, you know, the, you know, substantive pieces of the ship and apply it to some giant tractor system, you know. Now, whether it's like one torrent, two torrent, whether it's, you know, um, instead of a, a mammoth tank, might we actually call it hypothetically a bang blade, if you want to call it that. The bottom line is the GLA could make something like that happen. Now, at the rate that they could do it, that's a different story, okay? So, like, in other words, would, would it really be just a kind of bang blade like you would have in Warhammer 40K? Like, in other words, would you only have, like, one of these things, and would the GLA literally be able to take a battleship torrent, stick it on a tank, and then, you know, have lesser torrents that they've salvaged from other pieces and then make it work that way? And again, I, I think that this is what would have made the GLA more acceptable as a faction. Is that they really would have played up the concept of salvage. And um, they really would have worked through the idea, meaning EA would have worked through the idea of saying, okay, here's a simplified tank that basically has gained salvage, so now it goes to the next level of, of evolution then it gains more salvage, goes to the next level of evolution, then gains more salvage, so now it goes to the next stage of evolution, and so on and so forth. And had they done that, I think that that would have changed things quite a bit for the GLA. Also, though, it would explain things from an economy perspective, okay? So the GLA technically don't buy big, expensive stuff. Why? Because they don't have that kind of capital. They do in one sense, they don't in another. Like, in other words, you can have capital that can buy you military hardware. That doesn't mean that you have the kind of capital that you need, or, more importantly, aside from the capital, the relationships to gain the technological edge over, you know, other given uh, member nations. That, and that's something else that you got to look at, too, when you look at the, uh, the GLA. So, the GLA could have definitely had something in the way of air power. That, that makes perfect sense. They, they definitely could have had anything from like 19, shall we say, 79? We'll go with like a 1979 and backwards, okay? I definitely wouldn't be getting into like the 1980s or anything like that. But, um, you know, uh, hypothetically speaking, the GLA could have had something in, in regards to that. But again, you know, EA trying to play up the idea of what these guys were supposed to be, which was just an anti, you know, global movement, um, anti-government global movement, um, which in reality, they're nothing but a bunch of jihadis. 
uh, pretty much. I mean, like we could just call it what it is. Um, the the point to to where I'm going with it is there was a really big missed opportunity on that end. Now, if you look at the Chinese, okay, and and, and I'll do them as my second example here with this, okay. The problem with the Chinese is not that there were really a lot of mistakes that were actually done in generals on the Chinese. It's just that the Chinese never would have built the, you know, the, um, the overlord. They just wouldn't have built it. Like, no, that would have been a GLA thing. That, that wouldn't have been a Chinese thing. The Chinese never would have built the overlord. The Chinese, what the Chinese would have done is they would have, you know, basically have tried to have mimicked, they would have copied, you know, that of the opposing faction. And and I think that this is where they kind of miss the point on the Chinese. The Chinese are basically a kind of fact, or, or like the kind of faction that should work off of a simulation. Like, in other words, what they do is they basically take their understanding of, of technology and then apply it to the acquired form of technology um that they get their hands on, all right? So the acquired technology, they just simply work with, mold it into something that they can deal with, and then say, here you go. It's kind of like in World War II, when, at the end of World War II, the British gave the, um, you know, uh, the Russians to uh, Royal... Uh, Royal... Ro- Shit, I can't say it now. Um, Royal Rose. Ah, I can't speak. Anyways, okay, they gave them two fighter jet engines, all right? And, um, and what happened was the uh, Russians reverse engineered it and then, voila, you know, all of a sudden they had jet fighters. Um, the Chinese work a lot in this way where they have a, a base tech line, but they're able to advance their narrative based on what the opposing faction is. And again, I think that this is really important because that's the only way they're going to come up with an overlord is that the GLA basically basically acquire so much salvage on a battlefield and then you know black lotus is able to acquire the schematics then the chinese say oh guess what we hacked it we've got it now we're producing it there you go that's how it should have worked with the chinese on the higher the higher echelon you know of things and i i do think that again um, when you go to look back at generals, and I tell everybody to do this, go back and look at generals, you'll see where there were missed opportunities. Now, with the U.S., obviously, what I sat up here and said was very true. Their missed opportunities were very simple. A, they did not advance past, basically, an anti-ballistic armor system, number one. So, they didn't go into rail cannons, they didn't go into, like, lasers, in the sense that lasers are used... Um, they didn't go into areas that really would have made sense. What happened was you basically got here, let's add this type of weapon effect and let's add that type of weapon effect and let's just swap out weapons, but keep the, the units relatively the same. And, and I believe that this is what ultimately hurt the U S I think that really, when you look at generals, it is the beginning or especially zero hour. Okay. I'd say zero hour being the, the big teller of it you begin to see EA's laziness, you know, and how this all begins to uh, play out for them. Um, what you're looking at is you're looking at a faction that effectively, for all practical purposes, 
um, in regards to the U.S., has everything there that you would know it would need in order to succeed, but rather than give the U.S. its complete assortment, what they do is they kind of like just sprinkle it across, if you will, sprinkle it across other, you know, factions and then say, ah, here we go, here we go. So that really does hurt, you know, the, um, the, uh, the U.S., you know, from, from, from that end, it, it really does. And unfortunately, you know, that's just how that goes, um, with command and conquer generals. Now, why am I bringing this up? Okay. Well, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there are two types of ways of looking primarily in the way that I see things. Um, there are two types of ways of looking at universal technologies. One way is a, a system of methodology. And that's what I just explained to you. Okay. The U S is based off of technology. Okay. The Chinese are based off of the idea of assimilating, um, you know, uh, technology. All right. That, that's what they would do. They would assimilate it. Um, and then what happens is the GLA are the ones who salvage, you know, just technology in terms of wreckage. All right. So, so you have tech drivers, us assimilators, which are the Chinese and then salvagers, which are the GLA. And when, when you think about it like that, that's why generals can work. Okay. Because in a real world scenario, generals would never work. I mean, like, quite frankly, if you took, <laughs> you take any Middle Eastern country, okay. That is not, uh, supplied by the U S in terms of their armaments. All right. And then you put a U S led faction in there. They get rolled over instantly on a technological front. That's it. It's over. Bam. There's not, there, there's nothing to even talk about. Okay. Um, like you, the Gulf war proved it. You can't sit up here and put like T 72 tanks, or I'd even argue like T eighties or T nineties when it comes right down to it up against, you know, Abram tanks, whether you're talking one or twos and expect them to win. It's just not going to happen. Um, and again, like I said, I said, us based coalitions. Okay. So you don't get to sit up here and say, well, what about the leopard or, you know, what about the, uh, you know, the, um, the Israeli tank or which I forget the name of it now, but anyways, you know, what about the challenger or so on and so forth. And, and that's why I threw that out there the way I did. Um, you don't really get to do that in this case. All right. Um, now granted, you know, a T 80 or a, a, a T 90, definitely. Um, or T 95. I mean, like God knows these guys got like so many different models now, um, depending on which, you know, communist based faction you're talking about. Um, there's far few and in between variances. They could give, you know, an Abram, a run for its money. Once when you get up to that higher point, but you can't produce it in any meaningful quantity. That's what it is. I mean, like it's, it's true. It's kind of like saying, okay, the United States is going to deploy 400, 400, you know, tanks of the 400, you're going to have 200 a one Abrams, a hundred, you know, um, a two Abrams, and then you're going to have some like M 60, whatever in there. Okay. You're going to have those. 
And why? Because like we like our Vietnam air tanks. Okay, let's just let's just say that that's the composition you have. All right. Then what's going to happen? You're going to have some Arabic faction come along, and if they're lucky, if they're lucky, they'll have a T90 class or T80 class somewhere in there, and they may have like 50 of those. If they're lucky, I mean, well, no, let's be honest here. We wouldn't be talking about 50. We'd be talking like more like five. All right. You're not even talking 50. And then you would have like 2000, you know, uh, T62s. And then, and then, and then, and then you might have like, you know, 200 to 400 T72s. Like that's what would happen. You know, I mean, like, and that's why they could never win. And remember in the Gulf War, what happened was, you were talking about a scenario where literally the T-72 couldn't even, for all practical purposes, scratch the paint off an A-1 Abram. I mean, like, that's how bad it was. I mean, that's how one-sided this was. You know, that's how one-sided the whole war was. I mean, like, if you go back and watch the Gulf War and watch watch those tank battles, you, you find out quite a bit there. Now, the truth is... You know, obviously, yeah, they did scratch the paint off the tank when they actually did hit a tank. Um, but you get my point of what I'm talking about. It was one of the most one-sided conflicts in human history. Um, and you don't see conflicts like that that are literally that one-sided unless you look at, for example, Henry V when he fought the French, you know, and how that whole thing went down. Or when you, when you look at, um, I want to say, uh, the ending of the Holy Roman Empire, um, meaning, you know, Prussia, meaning Germany, um, and what happened with the, um, I want to say with the Swedes using, using guns on the battlefield and, and, and changing, you know, in, in terms of that era, or if you looked at the conquistador coming over to, you know, um, the Americas and how they were able to simply just, roll the Native Americans over without really much of a, a conflict at all. Like that is how one-sided this was, you know, now the difference between all those other conflicts I mentioned and, and the Gulf War conflict is that thing was televised. The other one is just written, you know, and, um, <laughs> it's just, it's, yeah, that's just written. Okay. Written in, 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 uh, in text of the victor. So I don't, you, you really don't know what happened, but you can just take it at face value that the Native Americans aren't here anymore in the way that they were, so obviously there must be some validity to what they claim. Um, and, of course, you know, in the end, if you look at Europe, just the the population, geographical migrations back and forth and stuff like that, it's neither here nor there or everywhere with, with them. So, to my point of what I'm saying, there are very, very few victories that you can ever look at in the Gulf War scenario of actual tank warfare and say, wow, you know, that's amazing. So from that standpoint, if you were to look at command and conquer generals and say, do the Chinese stand a chance? Really? No, they don't. Do the GLA stand a chance? Not at all. Um, but what you do is you work off of the concept of a universal background that says, listen, the U.S. are the tech leaders. That much is identified with, okay? The Chinese are industrialists. Okay. And we're talking about labor industrialists. Okay. Not tech industrialists. There's a difference there. All right. So that much is identified with, and then the GLA are scavengers. 
that's what they are. They're scavengers. So that much isn't identified with. So when you, when you look at, you know, um, these, these different factions, you start with that kind of thinking and then you say to yourself, okay, now that we have that premise down, we can use that as our given method, our metric of ideology to then create a given faction system. You know, you're, you're able to do so. And in doing that, what you're able to do is you're able to say, okay, now, all right, now the U.S. can have an A1 Abram. But the Chinese will have their battle master. And then the GLA will have, shoot, man, I mean, like, a tractor with a tank torrent on wheels. That's what they'll have. Now, we'll say they have, like, an M6, or, yeah, that's actually what they would have. Okay. Uh, and now, it wouldn't even be a tractor with a, with a tank torrent on wheels. They'd probably have to start literally with a, a tow missile. That's what they'd have to start with, is a tractor with a tow missile. Yes, a tractor with a tow missile. So basically, if you were comparing the three, think of it like this. The U.S. would start off with basically a tank that would be equivalent to an overlord, all right? In comparison, if you were comparing the Battlemaster to an A1 Abram, that, it, it'd be like it'd be like comparing a Crusader to an overlord. But the U.S., in this case, actually, they have the overlord. Um, that would be the power of the the U.S. tank versus the Chinese tank, all right? So it'd be like a, a, uh, a overlord to a crusader. Then what would happen is the GLA would have basically the equivalency of the Armor Humvee with a tow missile. That's what they would have. Armor Humvee with a tow missile. But that would be the difference there. Now from there, what would happen is you would have a, a, a different systems in which different factions are able to work from. So for example, Although the U.S. would have a tank that would literally have like three times the HP, we'll say for the sake of the conversation, two times the armor, so on and so forth, the Chinese would be able to acquire the technology through hacking purposes and then adapt it to their own tanks. They would have an adaptation policy that would say, okay, the Chinese start off with less than the U.S., but what they're able to do is through means of hacking and information gathering, is they're able to create, you know, basically a a bridge between them and the U.S. on the baseline. That's what you would have. In the same way that the GLA would be able to do something even more extravagant, where basically they would be able to make leaps and bounds beyond what your standard form of technology would be sheerly based on the salvage systems that they pick up on. So keep in mind, like the U S would gain hard technology advancements. Okay. So like, for example, you would have kinetic weaponry and then your, your baseline kinetic weaponry would turn to, you know, rail kinetic weaponry. That's what would happen. You know, um, and then of course you might even, uh, talk about, you know, plasma, uh, as being like an alternative to that. Like you could, you could literally do that kind of thing with the U S you could sit up here and still talk about using lasers, but not in the way that they do in command and conquer generals. Cause that shit's 
lame. Um, but yeah, you could sit up here and use a laser type system if you wanted to. So what would happen with the U.S. is the U.S. wouldn't necessarily advance to become more powerful through the means of, of, um, shall we say, gaining bonuses on teching up. What they would do is have alternate technologies that would then play off as attribute modifiers to how, you know, the faction would be able to work. Where the Chinese, they actually don't get that ability. What happens is they're just trying to get to the U.S. baseline. That's their main goal. Can we at least get our tank to be like that that mainline battle tank over there? Can we at least do that? That's what they're trying to do. So you spend your time trying to do that. Where the U.S. is already there at the finish line, they're just creating, you know, a paradox, you know, to that finish line to say, all right, this is where we're going next, and this is where we're going next, and this is where we're going next. The Chinese, on the other hand, are just trying to adapt the ideas and say, okay, we can make it work like this. We can make it work like this. We can make it work like this. So that's one of the big differences that you have there. Now, the GLA, like I said, they'd be very, very different in a given scenario like this, where they get to sit up here and say, all right, guess what? U.S., it's great you have all that armor, because now we're going to take it and put it on our rig over here. That's what we're going to do. And what you see with the GLA is you see them slowly, surely build themselves up. It's almost like a snowball going down a mountain, which will become an avalanche. And that's what makes the GLA different. So the concept of universal, um, a, a universal level of, uh, or, or point of agreement on how everything can work is what you, what you can do sometimes, okay, that works for, we say, like a crossover system. Okay, so it's not so much about, in a literal, literal form, can a Chinese main battle tank, okay, beat a U.S. main battle tank? The answer is no. Everybody knows that. And nobody's going to sit up here and kid themselves about that, all right? In the same way that, yeah, the GLA could take a tractor, put a tow missile on it, and they could probably punch a hole into a U.S. battle tank. But what are the odds that they would be able to get within range of the U.S. battle tank without being taken out by the U.S. battle tank? Like, that would be your next argument there, okay? Like, so, like, in other words, the U.S. still reigns dominance in this given area, okay? That's just how this works. So, to give other factions a viable chance, what you do is you play off of the premise of what they represent overall. That's what you do. So... A a concept of agreed origin is basically what you do, but you're not actually dealing with hard metrics. What you're dealing with is the idea of the metric and then saying, okay, this is how this is going to work for us. All right? So that's one way to do it. Okay. Another way to do it, all right, which this is what I prefer personally, okay, is working within the concepts of each given universe and then finding one metric that ties them all together. Okay. Now this is different. All right. This is different. What this means is, is that 
when you do a crossover, all right, like in the way that we are, all right, and you have, like, for example, Nod, GDI, Scren, Earth Federation, Xeon, Envid, Robotech Defense Force, and, and God knows whatever else might actually enter this thing, all right? When you do a crossover in the way that we, you know, um, are doing it, the way we did it is we went with universal origin within the subtext of the actual franchise itself. And then from there found a commonality. That's what we did, which is different. Okay. So what we looked at was a hard commonality. And, and this is why this is important to understand because the first way I described to you is how you're able to basically just like create a cooker cutter scenario that says, ah, you know what? The Chinese, the Chinese GLA and, and, and us can all be on equal ground. And the second way that this actually works. Okay. Is you basically take it from the concept of how can a story origin actually even come about? Because you technically are going to need a story, a story origin to support what you're talking about. So here's how it works, all right? The second way to do it is this. What you have is you have your, your respective franchises, okay? So you have the Command and Conquer franchise, the Robotech franchise, and the Gundam franchise. And what you do is within those franchises, you actually frame, okay, you frame the factions as they're going to be. This is what you do. So, like, for example, if we were talking about Gundam, all right, if we were talking Gundam, all right, you start off with the fact that the RGM-79 type unit, okay, or the, or the, the gym, or GM, whatever you like to call it, um, it's been called many things over, over the lifetime of its, of its inception, um, you start off with that, and what you do is you say, okay, for this, this franchise, this is our building block that we're working from. And then what you do is you look at the universal background technology of that franchise, and what you do is you start stacking things on top of it. That's what you do. So in other words, you start off with a, you know, RGM 79, and then you say, okay, well, now we want to go one notch higher. So what notch higher, you know, in what way are we going to go a notch higher? You say, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to go with a GM Customs, all right, which will be like one notch higher. And then you go, okay, all right, well, once when you go one notch higher beyond that, what are you going to go to? And then you go to a power GM, you know, which is one notch higher above that. And then you go, okay, fine. So you got, you, you've gone that notch higher. So where are you going to go after that? And then you go to a GM, you know, a uh, quell. So you've got RGM 79. We'll, we'll call it the Kaya just for the sake of the conversation. We'll call it Kaya. You've got customs, you have power GM, and then you have quell. Okay. So you've got all those right down the line, the quell being the most powerful, then the power GM, then the customs, and then the RGM 79. Now, what's important to understand about this is you are basing the concept of what these units are based on hard stats within the Gundam universe. This is what you're doing. And this is what's actually really, really important to understand here. Okay. So you have to understand 
you're not involving CNC in this whatsoever. You're not involving Robotech in this whatsoever. What you're doing is you're looking at the Earth Federation and you're saying, okay, within the Earth Federation system of, of a universal build, this is how their units come across. So a GM Kaya, good on its, its mobility, you know, it's decent on its mobility, um, you know, fair on the armor. That's what it is. Then you get to a, a GM Customs. Well, a GM Customs is definitely better on its armor, but excellent on its versatility. You know, then you get to a Power GM. Power GM, again, is good to excellent on the armor, depending on the interpretation that you have for a Power GM. Um, and then what you get is you get mobility acceleration. I'll phrase it like that. And then you go to, of course, the, the quell. And it just depends on like how you want to dress up the quell because the quell is linked into, into Gundam Hazel. So, you know, again, you can put it at that power GM status where the thing has excellent armor and then it has outstanding maneuverability. Now, I did just simplify that down in a way that you couldn't do generals, obviously. And the reason for that, okay, the reason for that is because you're dealing with a subtext of a given franchise and then saying, this is the only universe that I'm actually working in. So understand here, you're not looking at Xeon as, as comparing it to something. You're not looking at, um, you know, GDI and comparing it to something. You're not doing any of that. All you're doing is a an overcast of a given faction and then saying, okay, based on the placeholders here within the overcast, this is what you're going to get. Now, it, it is a little more complicated than that, okay? Because what you have to do in this case is you, have, you actually have to dig into the franchise and actually find the reasoning for your support. In other words, you've got to find the things that support what you sat up here and said. So if I sit up here and say that the GM Kaya is fair on its armor and it's good on its mobility, all right, then I have to look to the animation to show me that. You know, that's what I have to do. I've got to actually literally look at the animation and say, okay, here's how we get to this point. In the same way that when we look at the GM Customs, you know, it's, it's said in 0083 that the GM Customs is remarkable for being totally unremarkable. That's what's said about it. But in reality, what you find out is that the unit itself is highly remarkable. Now, it may not have been remarkable because, you know, those guys have been messing around with power GMs and now they were messing around with Gundams on the base. I mean, like, yeah, it may not be remarkable from that perspective, but from a standard GM Kaya perspective, it's actually quite remarkable. The other thing is, is that, you know, they were messing around with Zaku's and stuff like that and, and testing different, you know, concepts and theories, you know, and, and what have you not. And they, their perception, meaning the test pilots of what is great and what's amazing does ultimately contradict what the pilots are able to prove on the battlefield with the mobile suits themselves. In this case, the RGM, um, you know, 79 in customs. So 
this is why you have to look to basically uh, a supportive piece to say, okay, this is where this thing stands as a placeholder within your faction. Now, the, the other reason to why you actually do this is because this eliminates a lot of the fluff. Okay, and let me tell you about fluff. Fluff kind of works like this. All right. Oh, let's put Gundam in the game. All right, that's totally awesome. Look, these are the mobile suits that we can put in because we've got the materials to do so. Okay, and I use the term materials very loosely. Ah, we can put in the gun cannon. We can put in the gun tank. We can put in, you know, gun cannon mass production. We can put in, you know, um, RGM, you know, 79, 79G, 79N. You know, um, you know, we can put in the Quell. We can put in the Power GM. And I could go on and on and on about the other things that you could sit up here and put in. You know, um, GM Sniper, GM Sniper 2, GM Sniper Custom. You know, and, and again, I could, I could go on and on, but I will spare you guys my, you know, my knowledge of the Gundam assortment. Okay, for the Earth Federation um, one-year war conflict. My, leading into Stardust Memories... My point to what I'm trying to tell you is this, is that you can start talking about things like a GM Raider if you want to. You can talk about the GM Command Unit. You can talk about the Cold Climate GM Command Unit if you want to, okay? But the point is, how far does it move the needle if you put it in the game? That's what it ultimately comes down to. You know, how far does it move the needle? And this is one of the reasons to why you have to cut through all the fluff. Because what you're going to be stuck doing is you're going to be stuck, you know, putting in 50,000 variations of mobile suits that literally are a hair different than the other. Like, literally, they're a hair different than the other. You know, like, if you look at a GM Command unit and a GM Kaya unit, there's not much difference between the two mobile suits. There really isn't. I mean, I might honestly say I think the command unit is a little bit better in the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and I would say the Kai is probably a bit better in, in a colony scenario. I might give it that. But realistically, there's, there's not much difference there between the two, except for their cosmetic aspects, and except for the fact that you could sit up here and say, the command frame produces the GM Sniper 2, which would be an asset, and the, um, the, uh, um, Kaya produces the Power GM frame, which again is an asset, you know, that's what you're realistically looking at here. I mean, like, you'd be looking at the variances that are a notch higher, you know. And, and then you got to ask yourself, okay, well, even if that is the case, do you need a command unit and do you need to have a Kaya unit? Now, with the command unit, you consider going to say, oh, it uses a beam weapon, so on and so forth. And yet, at that point, yeah, you might make the, the argument for why they both can coexist. But my my overall point to what I'm trying to say here is that you have to, like, literally cut through all of the fluff that really doesn't matter. And that's hard to do. Because keep in mind, you're producing this project off a certain level of passion. So if you start eroding away at your selection, what are you also doing? Eroding away at your passion. And it's very tough for developers, you know, me included, where you have that potential to have that selection. 
and you're like, I can do this. I can, we can get all this stuff in and it will work out perfectly. And then what you find out is this, a, you can't actually make it function due to the fact that in order to fulfill every single placeholder, you know, you're not going to have like eight mobile suits. You're going to have like 32 mobile suits. That's what you're going to have. B, what happens is again, you're producing what to get what, you know, you're producing what to get what. And we go back to that again, which I think is really, really important is that you got to understand that if all you're doing is producing a GM command unit to get a GM sniper two as a call in support, and then you still want to have the white dingo in the game, or you want to have the canine or the, the, uh, the GM sniper canine in the game, then why do you still need to have the command unit? Because it, it, the only thing it's there for is to do what? To call in a sniper, but you still want to have like two or three other snipers in the game. Well, why not just have a sniper that calls in a sniper unit and then call it a day? And that's my, my, my point to where I'm going with this with you guys is I'm, I'm trying to get you to understand here that when you do it this way, okay, when you, when you look, and this is why you have to just strictly look at the, the franchise itself and its subtext. Okay. When you're dealing with franchises as big as Gundam, you've got to look at them, you know, and then say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to set it up where we're going to select GM here, GM here, GM here, GM here. And these other GMs are going to feed off of these other GMs in terms of a support role. And then that's how we're going to make it work. The reason to why you do this is because that's how you extract the strongest continuities out of the actual game. That's how you do it. You know, now keep in mind, this is in direct contrast technically than, than, than what I talked about before with generals. See with generals, you weren't looking at a literal, you know, uh, or, or you weren't looking at source material, meaning real world in this case, uh, for generals, a real world, um, I want to say material base to base your units off of. You don't do that. What you do is you go with a general idea of this is how the technology moves. Okay. And this is the technological gap between, you know, given factions. And this is how other factions catch up with other factions, or this is how they're able to basically, um, counter, you know, so either it's a game of catch up or countering with other factions with Xenoforce Reborn. It's different. We can't do that. And the reason why we can't do that is because A, you have too many factions, B, you have too much technology, and C, you're working with franchises that are already cemented in the kind of technology that they have. You know, so again, we go, we, we look at this here, and then we look at Robotech. Robotech would be a great example, okay? You, with In Robotech, you have three generations worth of mecha, okay? Three generations worth of human mecha that you're able to deal with, Okay. You've got the BF-1, which is basically like a transformable F-14 fighter. Um, you have the, uh, you know, VH-1, which is just a hover tank that transforms into a battleoid. Um, you have the, um, the, 
you know, uh, alpha beta system where it's one robot mecha transformable fighter that connects to another transformable fighter for greater offensive output. You've got that right there, a combiner system. So on top of mechamorphosis. So yeah, it sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? So you see how, how just dealing in contrast with that Gundam could never catch up with it. Now there are some people would probably sit up here and say, well, what about Zeta Gundam or what about double Zeta? I mean, double Zeta uses a combiner system and transforms and that just what you set up here and said about, you know, uh, the alpha beta. And I would be like, no, 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 no. Listen, the alpha fighter alone without the beta would destroy the, the, <laughs> it would destroy the double Zeta Gundam without a problem. I mean, the, the double Zeta Gundam would come in, it would try to sit up here and, and make its configuration and the alpha would just blow it to smithereens. I mean, like, and it, it wouldn't even be plausible. And then, of course, there would probably be, be people out there saying, what about Victory Gundam, Doug? What about Victory? Okay. Or, a.k.a. Gundam Seed, what about Impulse? You know, um, still, you got combiners there, you know. And you have, technically, a fighter core system. So, isn't that a transformation from fighter to mobile suit. Ah, you see what I'm saying here, Doug? And I'm going to tell you again, no, it wouldn't happen. Okay? It, it wouldn't happen because what you're doing is you're trying to take a fighter, which is form A, and then add other pieces to make it a robot, which is form B. The Alpha is a fighter that literally, as a whole, transforms into a robot, and on top of that, it has, like, internal, you know, uh, missile systems and and what have you not, like, again, it would just blow those units away without it. It would, it, it, just trust me, guys, it wouldn't look good. Okay. It wouldn't. Um, cause keep in mind, this isn't Voltron, man. You know, like, like Voltron's about the only combiner aside from maybe Tryon three. Okay. Tryon three, I put up there too from Gunderbill fighters try. Okay. But those are probably like the only units where you can do a combiner system and not get blown to smithereens. Okay. Literally based on how their stories are written. So, you know how Voltron works, you know, all, like, all five lines become comets, and then they create this giant plasma field, and every single time someone tries to touch Voltron when it transforms, yeah, they get a nasty burn, and they don't want to do it again, okay? It doesn't kill them, they just get really burned by it. You know, Tryon 3 just has a really powerful deflector shield, so, yeah, that makes it tough. Although, the Alpha probably could still destroy Tryon 3 it couldn't do Voltron. That, that part is true. So, um, again, the idea of combiner units that are transforming into a robot versus a robot that can transform into a fighter, which can combine with another robot that has the ability to transform into, you know, a, a giant booster pack. That's, that's just completely different. Okay. It's completely different. And, and I have to throw that out there. Um, as a, uh, as a, a courtesy to our, to our conversation here, right? So again, when you look at Robotech, Robotech works very differently. Um, technological wise, like it just craps all over Gundam. I'm like, there's no way on earth you could sit up here and take Gundam, um, and compare it to Robotech if you were talking about it from the standpoint of a literal sense. You couldn't do that. 
Um, the fact is, Robotech Mecha, no matter what generation you want to choose, because they're in a Robotech universe, are vastly superior to Gundam Mecha, which if you're talking, for example, like UC, their concepts were based around a, a belief of realism that, like, in the year 2000, this is how humanity would live. I mean, like, it's basically calling them the Jetsons with giant robots. That's what it is. Except that, that in this case, the Jetsons live in giant cylinders. They don't, like, have, you know, towers high up in the sky, you know, that they hover around little saucers with, okay? Like, that's the the difference between, like, Robotech and, 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 and Gundam. I mean, Gundam is like the Jetsons, and Robotech is like, well, still Robotech. Um, and, and I don't say this because I have a bias towards, you know, uh, uh, Gundam. You know, I, I don't. I like Gundam a lot. Um, but I do think Robotech, of course, from a technological perspective, is vastly superior. And it's said in many, many different ways. I mean, like, like one of the things in Robotech is that your mecha can get smaller, but also maintain the same level of power as the previous generation or become more powerful. Okay, that doesn't really happen in Gundam. You know, so Gundam doesn't have the cell phone effect where the phone gets smaller, smaller, and smaller, and and before you know it, the phone is like only a quarter of the size of the first cell phones that were released back in like the 19, you know, 90s or whatever. Um aside from the 80 cell phones, but they're, they're more than a hundred to a thousand times more powerful than the, for, than the, you know, the PCs in the nineties in the retail market. I mean, like this is like, like, look at your smartphone. Okay. Look at your smartphone. And, and that's, that's the way I'd, I'd say, take your best smartphone on the market today. Okay. Your premier smartphones. All right. And then compare them to the top-performing PCs back when the Intel Pentium was first produced. All right? Like, yeah, an Intel Pentium, like, 133 or whatever. Okay? Uh, I'm talking 133 megahertz. Yes, I'm talking that. All right? And that's the difference between Robotech and Gundam from a technological perspective. So, all right... Understand, you've got mechamorphosis going on here with Robotech. Understand, you have mecha that have direct, uh, direct linked, um, energy weapons. Like, in other words, they, they, they don't actually need to hold the weapon in their hand. It's actually built directly into them, you know? So, you've got that going on. Um, you know, you've also got to understand that you have different kinds of, frameworks to work from, from Robotech. Like, for example, anti-reflex fallout weaponry, which is basically like, if you want to think of it, um, anti, you know, quantum, you know, nuclear fallout capabilities. Like, in other words, think of a nuclear bomb, now throw quantum mechanics on it, and then give it a blast radius. And yeah, a mecha can survive some shit like that, okay, in Robotech, where that doesn't really be happening in Gundam, okay? Now, granted, I mean, when you get to, like, 8th MS team, you start seeing mobile suits that really do have anti-fallout uh, nuclear capability. And then you see that in 0083, too, obviously with GPO2, GPO1, so on and so forth. 
But my point is, um, Robotech is still, they've got the quantum mechanical aspect to it where they, where Gundam doesn't. And then lastly, I'd sit up here and just point out this, fourth dimensional frame technology, okay, um, which is what you see by the time of the third Robotech war with the shadow fighters, you know, um, and again, you're talking about quantum mechanics, which are well beyond that of Minoski particle capability. Okay, so Gundam does have a secret sauce. I give it that. Okay, which is the Minoski particle. Robotech, they've got protoculture. And protoculture, quite different. Okay, if you can harness the true powers of protoculture, you can become the Symphony of Light, which is the Regis. All right? You harness the power of Minoski particles, and you come out with maybe something like Dome, or shall we call, you know, Exam... Or you come out with something like a psycho frame or an anti-psycho frame. I mean, like, that's what you get when you harness the powers of new types and Minoski particles. Okay. Which for all we know, new types could be a cancerous side effect of Minoski particles. They never really talk about that in Gundam. But you get my point of what I'm talking about here. You look at the Regis and the Symphony of Light and then compare that with like, what are you going to compare it to in Gundam? You know what? Armor Array and his T-frame, and his ability, and his willingness to want to live, and being able to push back access, doesn't even compare. Still does not compare. All right? So you can give Gundam the best of the best, and it still can't hash it against Robotech on the baseline. Just, I'm talking on the baseline here, all right? Because that's how just Robotech rolls. Now, this is not a Gundam versus Robotech scenario that I'm trying to get in here. What I'm trying to get in here is that this is why you cannot compare technologies from a cross-referencing perspective, all right? So, like, for example, if if we were talking about, you know, again, Gundam, and if you were talking about Gundam at its finest, like, what was the most powerful moment in Gundam? The most powerful moments in Gundam could be arguably, I want to say, two, two points, okay, that are clear for anyone to see. Number one, um, I would say is when GPO2 wipes out like two thirds of the Earth Federation fleet or some crazy shit like that. That nuke was some powerful shit. In fact, the blast radius of that thing, like just the sheer blast radius of it and what it does to the Earth Federation fleet, the size of that fleet, that's crazy. Okay. That is arguably the, the first most impactful thing in, in Gundam. Okay. The second most powerful, impactful thing in Gundam is when Armor Array pushes back access with, you know, new Gundam. Okay, like he pulls it off. Like it's like, wow, this dude really did pull it off. Like that's some Project Echo shit right there. Okay, that that really is. I would expect like Echo, and and almost it was almost as corny as something from Project Echo, in a sense, without being corny. You know, it's like you have that long, exhausting fight against, against, uh, you know, Char and Armro, you know, and Armro just lays it down on Char, telling Char the truth. Char's up here still bitching about Lala and all this other sense, uh, other nonsense, I'm sorry. And, and Armro's like, listen, man, I couldn't sit up here and, uh, or, I'm sorry, not, not, um, yeah, well, Char was complaining about that. Um, but Armro's up here telling Char, man, like, listen, man, I couldn't be a, a surrogate father to that quest, you know, she was just a bratty teenager, man, and it was just her time to go, and and now I gotta go push back access, okay, and Char, you can take a front seat to it, bam, slam his cockpit right into access, and says, oh, we're pushing it back, Char, 
we are going to push it back together. Um, and then, of course, it gets a little corny with everyone else with their crappy GM3s. Uh, just will help too. And then the Derek Garadoga's jumping in to help too. And that just, that kind of killed it right there. But Armor Array saved the moment when he said, oh, you guys are all leaving. This is my time to shine. And after this, I am taking a hiatus from Gundam until someone can write me a better story. And boom, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened right there. Armor Array saves the earth. He saves most of the guys trying to you know, help him push back access. He saves most of them. Um, and then on top of that, he gets to laugh in Char's face because Zyband is no more. Um, now contrast that with Robotech and, and some of their most impactful moments. We could go with, like I said, the Envid, you've got the Regis, the Symphony of Light. You've got that right there. You've got this Zentrani Holocaust. Um, and I'd probably just stop with those two right there. Uh, I could do something from, from, uh, what's its face? Um, you know, Emerson and the black hole maneuver when he creates a black hole through a folding process, um, and the ability to create a black hole and then disperse the black hole through folding and defolding. Ah, that was pretty impressive too. Um, which then plays into the concept of how they're able to partly create, you know, shadow technology just on its face, or actually the Neutron S missile, um, at the end of Robotech. And if you guys don't know these things about Robotech, then you should probably go watch Robotech. All right, that's what you have to do. Go watch Robotech, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and especially if you guys are, like, Gundam lovers, and you're listening to this, like, no way, Robotech couldn't be Gundam. Yeah, then go watch it, and then come back, and we can have that conversation. But my point to what I'm saying here is... Gundam's highest points just don't touch Robotech's, like, just, it's a typical day in the Robotech universe points. And that's, that's one of the problems that you have there, okay, is that Gundam builds up in a climactic stance where Robotech doesn't do that. It's just a matter of fact. She did it in the beginning, the Regis did, in the the beginning of New Gen. She does it at the end of New Gen, and it's just, hey, this is how we're going to roll. Now, why is this all important? Because it does sound like I'm rambling, but I'm actually not. Okay, I'm just trying to talk through it really fast. Why is this really important? The reason why it's really important is because technologically, you cannot compare protoculture to Minoski particles. You cannot compare Robotech to Gundam. It doesn't work. So, what happens is this, is you create a story. This is what you do. You create a story that says, let's take some elements of Gundam, some elements of Robotech, some elements of CNC, and now let's gel together and see what we actually can make out of this. And this is what we did, in short. This right here is what we did. But what we had to do also, just to be fair about it, is we had to basically take the sub-context of each franchise and the factions that they were in, and then frame them in a way within their own universes that actually made sense for the selections and the picks that we actually made. And again, this is very important. This is important to understand. Because if you don't understand this, you can't understand why we had to ultimately end up doing a crossover. So, it wasn't the fact that we wanted to get rid of GDI, you know, and write them out of a story, that GDI went the way they did. The way GDI went, and I explained this, you know, like two nights ago... They went 
in a very logical fashion. You know, they, they're not going out to pasture. They're just, you know, you know, they've just been, they've been reconsolidating, you know, been reconsolidating, getting a better rate on the mortgage, if it were. You know, that's where GDI stands in all of this. In the same way that when you look at, um, you know, Nod, and Nod has basically expanded in a way that most people would look at and go, what? How do these guys go from a terrorist organization to a Tiberium state? That's the whole point. That's why we call them the Tiberium state. They gain sovereignty. They gain statehood. And in and, and gaining statehood, this is what they gain as a byproduct of it. Okay? And then, of course, you've got the screen. You know, when we talk about the idea of the screen basically being a, a, um, an evolved subsidy of Tiberium, that is exactly what, that, that's exactly what they're supposed to be. But the reason why they are that is because that in and of itself explains the hardlining aspects of the Earth Federation. Like, in, it explains why the Earth Federation ultimately cannot go the way that GDI goes. And you're going to understand this as we work through the Earth Federation later on. Okay, so there's a lot of the story that you guys don't understand or don't know because you, you know, haven't been told it. Hence, that's why you don't understand it. Makes sense. But what you have to understand is that, A, our story is fleshed out right to the point of Xeon. Like, literally, we have our point, our, our story for GDI, we have our story for I want to say um, the the uh, the Earth Federation, we nod, Scrin, and we've got our story for Xeon. And on a looser front, we've got the Invid. Um, I wouldn't say that it's hard lined in the way that the other ones are. Like the other ones are hard lined in a way where Ryan can go back to my telling of the story, and he can you know, effectively listen to it and say, okay, I agree with that. And, and that's the whole thing here. Um, if you guys are wondering, how is it, Doug, you understand the concepts of, you know, universal technologies um, and applying them in, in such contrasted ways? The reason why I understand it is because I was the one who did it. That's why I understand it. And it took a lot of time to do it. It wasn't something I figured out like overnight. It wasn't. It, it was something that partly what I'm telling you is something I learned from from the Robotech uh, from the Robotech fandom and dealing with the franchise and trying to go back to a place of universal accepted origins. Okay, that's where you know um, effectively Xenoforce comes from. Um, so. The thing that you you always want to keep in mind here for how we, we we look at this, okay, is that in the way that we see it, okay, Gundam is Gundam, Robotech is Robotech, Command and Conquer is Command and Conquer, but what we do is we do a crossover where basically by telling a story, they're all able to work from a point of origin, which means the technology is all within a certain boundary. Okay, now, 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 granted, you know, someone might always want to make the argument, well, why didn't you guys just go with Gundam X and just kick all the other shit out? 
And then you could have just had like air masters and you could have had, you know, leopards and then you could have had, you know, Gundam X with the sack cannon. And then you could have had bits and called it a day. And what I would say to you is this is honestly, okay, we could have done that. And honestly, Gundam X is pretty much all you need if you want to go up against Robotech. If like, like literally in the Gundam universe, if you wanted to stand a chance of going up against Robotech, it would probably start with Gundam X. Like that's where you would basically start. Now Gundam X, no, would not be able to defeat Robotech in any meaningful fashion. I mean, like, because Robotech easily could have stopped that, like Zentrani, I'm sorry, not Zentrani, but the, um, the, uh, the, you know, colonist revolution colony drop, mass colony drop they did on earth. Like all joking aside, that easily would have been taken care of by, um, by, uh, by any task force in Robotech. That wouldn't have been a problem at all. That was the size of like the gut, like the earth federation's forces. That would, that wouldn't have been a problem at all. But you know, my, my point to, to what I'm going after here and what I'm trying to tell you guys, um, and what I think is really important is this, is that because we didn't go in a literal format, we didn't go in a literal, a literal format and we went within a format of the subtext of a given franchise for that faction. That's what allows us to throw in the GMs the way we want to. That's what allows us to basically pair it against Robotech Mecha. But also that crossover in terms of story gives us the origin to actually work from to say, here you go. So what the crossover does now, wrapping this basically to, to the final point of this conversation here, what the crossover actually does is this, is it allows for us to sit up here and say, Robotech, Gundam, CNC, Generals, I'm sorry, CNC, Tiberium Wars, we're all in the same boat here. We're all working from the same storyline. We're all working from the same mechanics. That's what we're doing. And in doing this, what this allows for is it allows for the, you know, player in this case, um, to basically look at the faction selectively and not sit up here and think to themselves, oh, well, you know, Robotech Veritex are more powerful than, you know, Gundam mobile suits. So I'm going to go with, you know, Robotech you know, the Robotech Defense Force, you know, it's one of those things where I I would basically phrase it like this. Robotech Mecha are more powerful than, you know, honestly, Gundam, Gundam units are. But in the way that we have it structured, your technologies are going to be within, shall we say, a margin of acceptance. Okay. They're going to be within a margin of acceptance. So you're not going to have the scenario of the Gulf War where you have like a, a T-72 going up against an A-1 Abram. It fires its 125 millimeter cannon and it can't even scratch the paint off the Abram. I mean, like you're not going to have that. Okay. That's not how this is going to work. And this is, this is very important to understand that you are going to have technological advancements on Robotech's end that Gundam's just not going to have. But Gundam will overcompensate for it in other ways. That's what it will do. Okay, and in the end, you're going to have technological advancements on Gundam's end, and Robotech would compensate for it in other ways as well. You know, now, of course, this conversation does exclude Xeon. 
and there's a reason why I'm excluding Xeon, because in the end, Xeon is not the equivalency in terms of placeholder that the Robotech Defense Force would be with, you know, the um, the Earth Federation. All right, it's not it's not even close to the same thing. So that's why we're not talking about Xeon in this case. The second thing is this, though, is um, the reason why I didn't bring up Xeon is because if I would have used Xeon as an example instead of the RDF, people would want to start comparing and contrasting Xeon with the Earth Federation. And the thing that you have to understand is we're not doing that. We're not actually comparing even Xeon to the Earth Federation when we do this. Xeon will be compared within its own class, meaning that Xeonic mobile suits will... will start from the same point of origin that the Earth Federation mobile suits do, but then they'll be compared in their own class. So what that would mean is that you'd be looking at, for example, the Zaku, the Dom, the Gelgoog, the Camphor, the Goof. You know, you start looking at those kind of mobile suits. Um, and it doesn't mean that those mobile suits are necessarily going to match spec for spec what they do in the show as much as they are going to be the idealistic placeholders for why they're actually there in the first damn place. That's how it's going to work for Xeon. And that's what, how it has to work for Xeon. Um, specifically, you know, and, and again, this is why it had to work this way for the Earth Federation. You know, if you get into a situation where you're trying to match, you know, spec for spec, mobile suit for mobile suit, and then you're trying to put in all these different variances and stuff like that, you honestly just don't go anywhere. You you really don't. You, you think that you do, but you don't. You know, when you sit up here and say, oh, let me put in a Rick Dom versus a Rick Dom 2, well, how big of a difference do you have between a Rick Dom and a Rick Dom 2? Like, like, think about that for a moment. How big of a difference do you actually have? You know? And to what Evail, do you gain anything from it from an RTS perspective? If if the Rick Dom, for example, has 17 points of armor, and a Rick Dom 2 has, we'll say for the sake of the conversation, 22 points of armor, all right, you're talking about, what is it, a five point of armor difference, okay? Now put that in percentages, all right, 22 to 17. That's not really that big of a difference if you're looking at it from a mass production based unit. That's not. You know, in other words, if the unit is primarily mass production based, if the unit is quote unquote cannon fodder based, then it's like, why not just use the Rick Dom if it works better from an economy standpoint or if economy is not the issue for Xeon, then why not use the Rick Tom 2 from a performance standpoint? And, and that's what I'm trying to, to, to go after here when we talk about the concept of placeholders here for how it works with the, with the faction. No one's disputing that a Dom costs less and a Dom is somewhat weaker than a Rick Tom 2. No one's disputing that. No one's disputing that either one can contribute in a given form of economy or performance. But in the end, you may only need to have one. And that's what I'm saying. You may only need to have one. So let's say, for example, you go with the Rick Dom 2 
and you go, okay, well, the Rick Dom 2 is more expensive. And you go, all right, well, fine, it's more expensive. But look at how you're able to accessorize the Rick Dom 2. The Rick Dom 2 has the ability to hold a, you know, mega particle beam bazooka. It's got that. It's got its 360 degree, you know, whatever, whatever. Then off of that, you can use uh, a Trump variant of it, um, which is like an 880 millimeter bazooka. And I can go on and on about what you can do with the Rick Dom 2. But you're not doing that with a Rick Dom. You know? So, again, the question becomes, like, like you can have a Rick Dom 2 and have the Trump bazooka, you know, which is 880 millimeter, or you can have a mega particle beam bazooka, or you can have just the anti-lunar, you know, 70 or 90 millimeter, you know, uh, assault gun. I mean, like, there are so many different ways that you can accessorize Rick Dom 2. So then we start looking at it and saying, well, if we use this as the placeholder, these are the different variances we can have with it just from a weapon selection perspective. All right, this is totally worth it. So why not do it? And that's the point right there. Like, like that right there is literally the point. Like when you look at, you know, what, where we're going with it, how we would look at it, we would have to look at it from that end, you know? So it wouldn't be like a, well, the GM command unit is a really great unit, but it can't take on a Rick Dom too. Uh, and it's like, well, wait a second before we say that, you know, where does this mobile suit stack up within its own lineup? Where does the GM2 idealistically stack up within its own lineup? Okay, based on the supportive source materials. Then after that, you can say whether it can take it on or not. But it has to be within its own given context first. Meaning that if Xeon starts off with a mobile suit, that is, for the sake of the conversation, um, from a, a point of universal you know, origins um, of agreement, if they start off with a mobile suit that only has half the armor of the Earth Federation, then a Rick Dom 2, just by default, can't necessarily be the Rick Dom 2 that you're looking for it to be based on how you saw it in an OVA setup. Okay, so the Rick Dom 2 may only be equivalent to a GM command unit based on the fact that the points of origin show that this is what, you know, um, Azaku is worth. The Rick Dom 2, being compared to the Zaku, had roughly about, you know, 20 to 50% improvement over the Zaku. <laughs> overall, even with the added ordinance. Um, so yeah, like that's what you get, <laughs> you know, that's what you get. It, it doesn't make a difference. What, what, whatever, what everybody else wants to believe, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, if, if the, if the source material doesn't show it, like if, if it shows that the, the Zaku was right here, it's, it's on a scale of one to 10, it's a five. And the Rick Dom is shown to only be 50% greater in its performance, then that's what you get. Like you get 50% greater performance. And that's why it will be there as a placeholder. Okay. Likewise, if you looked at the Gelgoog and the Gelgoog showed to be, you know, 60%, you know, then at that point we got to look at both mobile suits and say, okay, well, they're both iconic mobile suits. Why would we do the Gelgoog? Why would we do the Rick Dom too? Okay. How are they going to play off of each other? That's what you would do, you know? So 
I'm mainly just wanting to basically go over this concept of why you do a crossover scenario. And I think I pretty well explained part of it, you know, this round, which was you do a crossover because that's how you get basically everybody on the same page to talk to each other within different franchises. What you don't do is you don't sit up here and try to take the, the franchises verbatim, verbatim, and then even with the subtext of the franchise verbatim, verbatim, and run it that way and then say, okay, ah, here we go. Like that would work for generals. It could work for generals. I mean, like if they wanted to. Um, although for generals, what does work better from an RTS, just a game play fun perspective is actually the idea of a concept of agreement that that's what works better. Um, you know, than trying to do what you do in a crossover, which is a point of, uh, agreement of origins, you know, which is, which is quite different. So, um, with that being said, uh, until basically next week, I will talk to you later. All right, guys. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.